0: Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff with Christ Chapel College, um, and I'm glad you were all here. Um, I love worship. I love playing. I'm a musician myself, and a year ago, this time literally last year, uh, Brett knows this because I talked to him about it, I came to the conclusion that I needed a keyboard. Um, I grew up a musician and grew up a percussionist. Part of what brought me to TCU was that I had an opportunity to be on the drum line wasn't that good. Uh, Some of you have seen me play guitar here. I get to lead worship every now and then, but I grew up as a musician. Part of what that meant uh, as a drummer and a percussionist, it's not just banging around on drums and practicing rudiments and rhythm. Part of it is getting on a keyboard and learning music theory and learning how chords work together and learning scales and and you practice all that uh, every day. You practice the basics a ton. David gets it. a year ago, I was like, man, I have been removed from that world for a little while now. And so I should get a keyboard and start practicing that again. Just in case I Brett gets sick and I need a lead on the keys or anything like that, I want to be ready. And so I kept talking about how I wanted a keyboard. And so for Christmas, my wife lovingly bought me a keyboard. I was like, this is awesome. Take a stab at how many times I've used that keyboard since then. Three. Three whole times I've used that keyboard since last Christmas. Twice in the week that I was given uh, given it, and then once sometime between now and then in some divine moment of inspiration and motivation. Uh, I haven't used that keyboard at all. It sits in our guest room. doesn't really collect dust because I wipe it off every now and then, but it still just stays there. Um, that counts, right? I haven't been living in the light of the fact that I have a keyboard, and I find myself thinking, man, I wish that I like knew how to play this. I wish I knew how to do that. And I wish I remembered my skills. And I'm like, Yamomo, there's a keyboard in your guest bedroom. Just go do it. But I don't live as if I have a keyboard. And this gift that I have been given isn't actually of any use to me. And that is a very silly illustration of watch this smooth transition of the gospel, right? Um, I think that it is so easy to not live in light of the realities of the gospel. That's kind of what we're talking about today. We have already talked about how the gospel, when we first opened up the book of Galatians in chapter one, Ben told us how the gospel literally means good news. But the question then becomes, okay, what in the world do we do with that good news, right? The big question in the book of Galatians that Paul is answering is how do we live in light of the good news that Jesus Christ has died and then been raised from the dead? And the question that we are answering today is, what does gospel-rooted living look like? What does living by faith in the gospel actually look like? So we are picking up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to read all the way through 21. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens. If you do have a Bible, uh, join me as we read. It says, But when Cephas, uh, which is another name for Peter, When Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, which sounds like a pretty terrible party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, if you, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you then force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Cool. We'll stop right there and kind of unpack, give you some background on uh, this place called Antioch. Antioch uh, is the first place in which followers of Jesus are called Christians kind of cool little history there. It was a church made up primarily of Gentiles, which is just a biblical word of saying non-Jewish people. Um, So made up of that. And Peter, the apostle who walked with Jesus and who you see show up a lot in the gospels, it's one of uh, Jesus' main guys. He comes to this church in Antioch as a leader and begins eating and spending time with and associating with the Gentiles, which might not seem like a huge deal at first glance when you're reading this, but most jewish people at the time used to think that gentiles were unclean and immoral and should not be associated with and therefore they avoided intermingling with them at all costs and eating and sharing meals with people back then wasn't just a casual hangout or catch up like we typically do eating and sharing a meal and table fellowship with other people meant and signified you approved of them and accepted them which is a big deal um And that's why Jesus in all the Gospels gets so much flack for eating with sinners and tax collectors. Um, And Peter here is doing that too, which is a great thing. He starts eating with Gentiles and associating with the people that you wouldn't think he normally would. And long story short, this all happens because in the the book of Acts, you can read the story in detail in Acts chapter 10, if that's something you're interested in. Um, But this guy named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, non-Jewish guy, has a dream and a vision from the Lord. He's like, hey, You should reach out to this guy named Peter, have him over for dinner. Meanwhile, at the same time, Peter is having a dream and a vision from the Lord. And the Lord is like, hey, I have made clean what you used to call unclean. This guy named Cornelius is going to reach out to you. You're going to hang out with him kind of thing. Again, go read the story in more detail because it's a lot more captivating than that. But Peter ends up going. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius, his whole family, all these Gentiles, and they receive salvation, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and it's this massive deal that just goes to show that Jesus came not to just save the Jews, but to save everybody, and that salvation is offered for everyone, and then that leads us to this incident. He goes, he does ministry to uh, the Gentiles, comes to Antioch, he's associating with them, and then something happens, and he stops associating with them. These People come in front of him, and he's intimidated by them. And he's like, you're right. I'm going to dissociate myself from this. And so Paul is calling him out, and he's saying, dude, what happened? And if you were here last week, you remember the story of Paul. Paul and Peter were on the same page with the gospel for like 14 years, if you read the chapter right before this. They've been on the same page of the gospel is for everybody, for Jew and Gentile alike. And so they're doing the thing. They're sharing the good news. They're preaching. And then all of a sudden, Peter— Deviates. He drifts just ever so slightly, stops associating with the Gentiles. And Paul is like, dude, that is s- communicating to the rest of the world that salvation is not for everybody. And he, he calls him out for it. He's saying, you're not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. And then Paul goes on to unpack the truth of the gospel. And that's where we pick up in verse 15. Verse 15 Says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Stop right there. We see here in these two verses 15 and 16 this idea of justified by faith we're going to unpack that big super churchy word but you are justified by faith these two verses are actually one big long sentence in the original language and they are essentially a one sentence summary of one of the most crucial realities of the gospel and it's this thing called justification which again is a mega churchy word um but the author Paul puts this massive theological doctrine, justification, in, that's taught in the Bible into a single, understandable, very clear and articulate nutshell. And again, I believe it is crucial to our understanding of the gospel. So what does it mean? Uh, let's define it. Some scholars, I'll throw this up on the screen for you. Some scholars and theologians that I have learned from would say that justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through their faith in Christ. The gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through their faith in Christ. In other words, it's how we are made right with God. Or made righteous is the way he says it here, which means to be put in right standing before God. And what I want to break down and what I want you to notice is how the text says that a person is justified through faith in Jesus. And if you are an underliner or a highlighter and you have your own copy of the Bible or you take notes, I want you to go ahead and highlight every time that you see the phrase through faith or by faith. At any time in this passage, any time in the book of Galatians, it's going to pop up over and over again through faith and by faith. Um, and what we're going to see is that faith is both the basis and the means of our justification. Um, and it'll help us understand what justification is. Um, It is through faith and by faith that we are made right with God and are justified before God. Let's unpack that first with the basis. Look at verse 16 again. Uh, Verse 16, just the first part, says that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Depending on uh, what translation of the Bible you have, if you have one different than the one we're reading here, it might say that a person is justified because of Christ's faithfulness or something to that effect. Um, There's even a footnote that says that's a translation in my Bible, and that's a way that it's commonly translated from the original language. And I think that's interesting because it makes clear the point that you are not justified because of what you could do or what anything that you could do in your own power, but what Christ has done for you you're not justified because of your faithfulness to God, but because of Christ's faithfulness on your behalf, which ultimately led Jesus, led Christ to the cross and pay the wages of sin on your behalf. Um, Which, by the way, Romans tells us that the wages of sin, which sin being not this thing that you do or don't do or whatever, but this unescapable condition of our hearts, all of that leads to death. And then, Every one of us has sin and we fall short of God's holiness. We all have sin and that sin leads to death, which means, therefore, we could never make ourselves right with God on our own. Nothing that we do, no amount of good ethic or moral behavior, only what Christ has done for us on our behalf. And that and that alone is the basis of our right standing with God. What Christ has done for us is the foundation. Uh, Look at the rest of that verse, though, uh, 16. It says, so we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And it becomes clear here in the rest of this verse that the means of justification, meaning the method, uh, how we receive it is by faith or through faith and what Christ has done for, for you, meaning it is the method and the constant act of, right? It's a continuous thing of trusting in the fact that Jesus wrapped himself up in skin to conquer a death that you could never escape from and was inevitable for you. The basis, the reality, is that he actually did that, right? A man named Jesus came down to earth, or was on earth, walked on this earth, was nailed to a cross, then he was buried uh, after taking on the wrath and judgment of God, got put in a tomb, and then he got up. He folded up his clothes all nice and neat-like and walked out of the grave. That is a reality and a truth. And the question for you then becomes, not only do you believe that, but do you trust and have faith that he did it for you so that you might know him and love him and have a relationship with him, that you might be redeemed and restored by him and therefore be in right standing before the God of the universe. And that now his righteousness Another churchy word is imputed to you or given to you. And when God looks at you, he now sees Christ's righteousness as if it's your own. And he calls you son and daughter and beloved. And I'll say this real quick to help illustrate all of this. I get that faith and everything that we're talking about right now can seem uh, abstract. It can seem kind of heady um, and just like, okay, an intellectual thing. But faith isn't just a head thing. Faith is a whole person thing. Uh, it's not just mere belief in something, but it's a better way to think about it. And the way belief is used here in verse 16, by the way, in the original language, is a- actually translates to an entrusting, a deep trust. Uh, faith, the way I want you to think about it, is having a deep trust in something that influences everything you do. Um, and I want to illustrate it this way. It's how a mentor once highlighted it to me. Uh, He told me about a man named Felipe Petit. How cool of a name is that? Felipe Petit. The dude is French. Uh, The dude is French and kind of weird. Some of you like going on runs. You like making pretty charcuterie boards. That's kind of your thing. Felipe Petit's thing was going on walks. On tight ropes. 1,700 feet in the air. Weird dude. That was like his adrenaline rush. Uh, He walked tight ropes across the Notre Dame cathedrals, across Niagara Falls, across skyscrapers in New York that were like 110 stories tall. Um, If you're a Joseph Gordon-Levitt fan and you like movies, you've probably seen a movie made about him called The Walk, but odds are none of you have seen that movie. Yep, nope. Uh, It's a great movie, but Felipe Petit Literally just did this Uh, and then one day he gets a bunch of attraction. Uh, He's in New York. He's walking from uh, Skyscraper to skyscraper and he does it multiple times Eight times to be exact and at one point he literally like is in the middle of these two buildings on this tiny little tightrope And he lays down to take a break and catch his breath It's bizarre anyways all these people gather to uh, to see him and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think that we often can confuse faith with just mere belief. Here's what I mean. If Felipe Petit, our beloved Frenchman, walks from one skyscraper to the next, right up to you, and then says, hey, do you think I can walk back across? You'd say, yes, I believe you could walk back across. I've seen you do it eight times. I believe you can do it again. Obviously, that's belief, but faith, goes a a whole other level when he walks up to you and says okay get on my back now Felipe Petit is asking you to put your life on the line literally uh faith isn't just this intellectual heady thing where you simply believe in something right like I believe that George Washington was the first president. I believe someone just dropped their pin. I believe uh, that some people out there believe that Whataburger is still better than In-N-Out, which is not the case, and I'm from Texas. I believe all those things, but they don't change anything about me. Faith goes a step further and says that I believe it so strongly that I'm going to bank my life on this. I can believe, you can believe in the tenets of the gospel. You can believe that a man named Jesus was nailed to the cross, buried, and then rose back uh, from the grave and walked out of a grave. You can believe all of that. You can believe that the tomb is empty, that it's true, and you can still not put your faith in it. Faith is saying that I believe it so strongly that I'm banking my entire life on it. That is the faith and the belief that Paul is talking about here. And so again, the question then becomes, am I actually trusting in Jesus and what he's done and relying on him and clinging to him and banking my life on him? That is what makes us righteous before a holy and perfect God. That faith is what gives us right standing and is how we receive justification, as the text is saying. Now, kind of transition unpack more of this. Paul ends up writing another letter after the letter to the Galatians, this time to the Romans. Uh, and in it, in chapter 1 verse 16, you don't have to flip there, uh, but you can write it down, Romans 1 if you want to. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes or banks their life on it, both to Jew and also to Gentile. For in it, the righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we just unpacked what it means to be justified by faith. But what does it mean to actually live by faith? Let's pick up in verse 17. Verse 17 says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Great chunk of scripture. Uh, We see that not only are we justified by faith, but we live by faith. These verses answer the question of what does gospel-rooted living look like? What does it look like to live out the gospel and live by faith in the gospel? You see, faith isn't just about how we become accepted by God, right? Which is what a lot we talked about last week. It's not just about how we're justified and it's a one-time thing. We've received salvation. We are now accepted. The gospel isn't just how we receive salvation, but it's how we continue in the Christian life and live out our salvation. Faith in the gospel, big misconception, isn't just how we receive salvation, but it's how we live out our salvation, which is monumental. It is how we navigate and live every moment of every day. It is how we lead our lives. Romans 5, again, another one of Paul's letters, talks a lot about receiving the free gift of righteousness and justification through one man named Jesus, is the whole argument he builds around, and how that free gift is grace And it's wonderful, and it's good, and we should cherish it and live in that grace. But immediately, Romans 6, Paul says something very similar to what he's saying here in Galatians. He says, what shall we say then, now that we have received this grace? Are we to continue in sin? By no means, certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's kind of like the keyboard, to go back to that silly story of me not using my keyboard. I was gifted a keyboard and I don't even use it. I don't live in the light that I have a keyboard. Maybe that is a silly illustration, but the point is we, what use is a gift if you never use it or live your life with it? And I think what isn't a silly illustration is that we often find ourselves, or at least I f- find myself, Coming back over and over and over again to my prayers with God and just talking to myself of man, I wish I wasn't so selfish. I wish I was more patient. I wish I was kinder. I wish I could love that person better than I do. I'm always rude to them. I wish I wasn't stuck in this sin pattern. I wish I wasn't addicted to this or that. I wish I could find freedom. And we do that because we forget that Christ walked out of the grave and now his Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We forget that his death and resurrection purchased life and redemption and freedom for us. What use is that truth if you're not living in it? In Christ, you are no longer bound by or dead to your sin is what he's saying here. You are alive to God. And Paul reminds us to live like it. Now, we're going to unpack that just a little bit more here in a bit and hopefully get really practical for you guys so that you can leave here with something that will change your afternoon, your Monday morning, the rest of your week, ideally the rest of your life. Uh, But I want to highlight one more thing we specifically see here in verses 17 and 18, and we can throw them back up if you have them. Verse 17 says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, because if I rebuild what I tore down, I would prove myself to be a transgressor. What the heck is Paul referring to? What did, is he rebuilding that was torn down? Uh, remember that Paul is confronting Peter, right? He's telling, uh, telling Peter that he's straying from the gospel by disassociating with the Gentiles. And remember, Gentiles used to be deemed as unclean and immoral and just they were not to be associated with by the Jewish folk. But Paul's whole mission was to share the gospel with this group of people, with the Gentiles. And so it meant associating with them. It meant sharing meals with them, uh, which Jewish people got uncomfortable by. Um, And he, Peter, did that for a little while, too, but that made Jews uncomfortable and uneasy and Peter caved, which, by the way, This is an interesting note that someone highlighted to me while I was working on this sermon. It says that Peter feared some people, and therefore he strayed from the gospel, and it's the same thing that he did back when he denied Jesus, right? He feared people's perception of him, and he said, Jesus, I have nothing to do with you, and I just think that is interesting to highlight. Um, But in these verses, Paul is acknowledging that To old, strict, law-abiding, law-observant Jews, which he used to be one, by the way, he could and would be judged a sinner because he was associating with Gentiles. He doesn't disagree with them of like, I can see why you would think that. But what he does push back on and disagree on is the possibility that his potential sin-like behavior implies that Christ is then a servant of sin. He says, sure, if I rebuild what God tore down at, the, at that point, then would I prove myself to be a transgressor? If Paul would have withdrawn from associating with Gentiles like Peter did, he would have, in fact, rebuilt rec- what Christ died to tear down. Uh, but what exactly did Christ die to tear down? It's what Paul calls in another letter, not Romans, but Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility. This is Ephesians two thirteen through 14. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, meaning Jew and Gentile. So, therefore, making peace. Christ died and tore down the dividing wall of hostility uh to create unity out of disunity no more jew no more gentile he goes on to talk more about that later in galatians that we'll unpack in another sermon but jesus uh john 17 if you're familiar with that prays this long lengthy prayer right before he goes to the cross and in it he prays for the unity of believers that they might be unified in his name uh Here's an interesting thing or an interesting note that I want you to take about unity uh, to be clear. It's how a mentor used to explain it to me. Unity does not mean sameness. Unity means oneness. Oneness, not sameness. Unity doesn't mean that Jews will stop being Jews and be like Gentiles or vice versa so that they will all look the same. Unity doesn't mean us being best friends with each other and everyone unity doesn't mean that we're all going to go to the same party together ride in the same car together be included in each other's plans 24 7 all the time and act the same live the same life everything like that unity is not about sameness it's about oneness the unity Jesus prays for is that despite our differences our friend groups our college football allegiances if you're AM, i i'm so sorry Despite our racial and ethnic backgrounds, our upbringings, our stories, our sin struggles, our stages of life, or even our stages of discipleship to Jesus, despite all of that, we are unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. We're not made the same, but we are made perfectly one. And in that prayer in John 17, John says that because we are one, the world may know that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. Life in union with Christ, being crucified with Christ, and living on with Christ results in union and unity with other believers. That's how the Christian life and biblical community is designed. Okay, time to get practical. What do we do with all this? Time's running out. What does gospel-rooted living actually look like? It looks a whole lot like the cross. Read 220 again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Gospel-rooted living, living by faith, leads to a crucified life daily. Remember, the gospel is not just something that you receive once and then pass on and share with other people, which you should do that. But the gospel is a daily nourishment for your own soul, and it is a daily crucifixion. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple and experience my life must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This means that the gospel will absolutely push back on your selfishness. It will absolutely push back on your ego and on your pride and on your comfort because the call as a follower of Jesus, the challenge, the invitation is to not be bound by the self-promoting, self-protecting, self-preserving ways of the world, but to die to self. Complete opposite, completely counterintuitive, which means that we constantly pray and also therefore act on, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. God, more of you, less of me. It's a daily crucifixion. And friends, if there is no dying to self in your life, there might not be gospel in your life. If there's no dying to self in your life, then your life doesn't look like Jesus. So gospel-rooted living is a crucified life. Now, let's say you're doing that. Let's say you're walking the walk, you're doing the thing, you are going. What happens when you stray? When you fall out of step like Peter did and you, you have a minor snub Or a major snub? What happens when you find yourself buried in guilt and shame and regret? Or just simply find yourself discouraged and defeated? What do you do then? You return to the truth of the gospel. That is what gospel-rooted living looks like. Just a constant returning and remembering. Returning and remembering that you are justified and accepted by the God of the universe. Not because of what you have done or haven't done, but because of what Christ has done for you. You return to the gospel and remember that God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient to meet you wherever you're at. and My power is made perfect in your weakness. And his grace is what meets you wherever you're at and then is what works in you to bring about life change and to bring you into his life. That is gospel-rooted living. Now, to kind of start landing the plane. Whether you're in Christ or you're not in here, I'm glad you're here. I really am, uh, whether you're in Christ or not. And you're hearing a lot about this. But I want you to consider, everyone in here, what it means that the God of the universe loves you so much that he gave himself up for you, like we see in 220. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are loved, wanted, and desired that much that he would give up his son for you, despite whatever it is that you think makes you unworthy by him? unworthy of him or unlovable by him? Do you believe that the God of the universe desires a relationship with you and longs to call you son and daughter and beloved? That he longs to wrap you up in his embrace like a parent, like a a perfect father who thought his kid disappeared forever and then just sits on his porch watching and waiting, hoping that one day he'll return? Do you believe that that is the heart and the posture that the God of the universe has for you? Because I think it will change everything about your life. To end, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul could have left it right there, right? Paul could have left it at this idea of it is about death. But he doesn't stop there with death. He goes on and he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The gospel is going from death to life. The cross brings transformation, so be crucified with him, yes. But that death, that crucifixion is just a doorway into life forever, into life abundant and life forever with the God of the universe who created you and loves you and fulfills every desire of your heart, heals every wound that you might be experiencing and brings more abundant joy and peace in him than you could ever imagine or find anywhere in anyone or any else I'm going to read Romans 6 5 through 11 over you and then we're going to get back into worship but I think it's the perfect way to cap off this entire idea it says for if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We love you because you loved us enough to wrap yourself up in skin and give yourself up for us, Lord. To pay the penalty that we owed. You did that out of love, Father, and we just want to respond in love, Father. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Father, would that be our, our prayer? Would that be our heart? Father, would you use that to just change us from the inside out? Would you continuously remind us that everything that we have, we find are and are given because of you and what you've done? Father, we have nothing to bring to the table, but you give us everything by giving us yourself. Would that change us, Father? Would we respond in love and worship and adoration because of that truth. Would the gospel never grow old? Would we live in it daily? Would it be refreshing to our soul day in and day out? Father, there is life in relationship with you. And we are grateful that you made a way to access that life and that relationship. Father, we love you. We need you. And it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.